electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The pandemic productivity boom. The country is doing more with fewer workers than ever before. We're going to look at what that means for jobs, inflation, and the Fed. Plus, from a lack of inventory to bidding wars and record high prices, the housing market is super red hot. We're going to speak with Coldwell Banker parent Realogy about the trends they're seeing in their own red hot stock price. And a 20% price cut target for Tesla. Another change to the Dow, maybe. We'll talk about it. And the White House swipes right to get people vaccinated. It's all coming up on Rapid Fire. But we start with the markets. Dom Chu here with those numbers. We are trying to snap a four-week losing streak for the Nasdaq. And we looked poised to do it earlier in the morning. But now we've kind of cooled off a bit. The Dow Industrial is up about 82 points, much lower than we were at the highs of the session so far. The S&P 500 now drifting slightly into negative territory, 41.55 the last trade there. Still above that 40.80 mark that some traders are watching as an area of possible support or a bounce. And the Nasdaq now underperforming, slipping negative down about one-third of one percent. Remember, the Nasdaq trying to snap that four-week losing streak. We'll see if those modest losses stay that way. We can keep that streak broken. Now, some of the technology stocks that have seen a bid in the course of the last week as some investors step in to buy the discount prices that we've seen over the last several days. Chip makers like NVIDIA up five and a half percent this week. Intuit up about four percent and Salesforce.com up three percent over the last week. Some of the mega cap names, those stocks with at least a hundred billion dollars in market value in technology that have seen a bit of a bid this week. That's what's been on the shopping lists for some investors out there. And another one to watch. Nothing runs like a deer, at least over the last year or so. It's been up about 152% in the last 12 months. It's up about 1.5% today off its session highs. It's roughly 10% below where it was at the record still, though. Deer, one of the world's biggest makers, Kelly, of farm equipment, of construction equipment. It's been seen as a recovery play on the global economy since the depths of the pandemic a year ago. This company comes out with better-than-expected earnings, revenues, and it raises its full-year profit forecast Thanks to what else? Robust demand for equipment. Back over to you. Yeah, even as it tries to be a tech company, too. Dom, thank you. Well, 8.2 million. That's how many fewer workers our economy has following this pandemic. You'd expect that to slow things down, yet productivity is booming. Steve Leisman is here with more about that. Steve? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, it is an astonishing fact of the pandemic. Output from the U.S. economy has now topped the level from before the pandemic, but with 8 million fewer, 8.2 million to be precise, fewer workers. It's a result of booming productivity that several economists believe will outlast the pandemic. And that's good news for workers and corporate profits. The sources of the productivity boom, well, you've heard them. More e-commerce, that's going to stick around. Work from home, that's going to stick around. Doing more with fewer workers, better business processes, and of course, some creative destruction. Productivity normally booms after recessions. Unproductive businesses close. That's the creative destruction part. And often the least efficient workers are let go. But then it comes back down to earth as the economy normalizes. The difference this time, new technological advances and 
Ways of doing things like virtual real estate sales and work from home, they're not seen going anywhere. In fact, a paper by three researchers, including Stephen Davis from the University of Chicago, it concluded after 30,000 interviews of workers and employees about working from home that, and I quote here, much of the COVID-induced shift to work from home will stick long after the pandemic ends. We project that American workers will supply about 20% of full workdays from home, four times the pre-COVID level. There are positive impacts potentially for the stock market, too. Barry Knapp from Ironside telling me he doesn't think all this is factored in, and earning estimates, earnings estimates may have to rise in the months ahead. What are the results? Well, you can get higher wages from better productivity, higher profits as well, increased potential GDP growth, slower employment gains as it's a little harder to put some of the workers back to work. But also this challenge is the high inflation story. Work from home, Goldman Sachs says, has mobilized part of the household capital stock, home offices and computers for business purposes, much like what Uber and Airbnb did for cars and second homes. Now, a lot of these technologies, hey, they were around before the pandemic, but the crisis has shown that necessity is the mother, in this case, Kelly, of adoption. It's fascinating. Stephen, stay right there because we're going to speak more about this with uh, David Zervos himself. I know you're talking to about his views on all this. I especially want to spin it forward and look at what this economy might look like in the next six to 12 months. Uh, Dave, welcome. Dave's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. And I guess before I kind of get into the big picture, I want to make sure our viewers have a sense, Dave, of where these arguments are pointing in terms of market impact. All of this is paving the way for what kind of stock market and bond market for the time being, do you think? So I I think Steve alluded to a lot of this in his, his opening discussion, but a lot of this is just it's very good for corporate profits. It's actually good for wages. It's it's a bigger high to share. How that gets split up between capital income and labor income is debatable. But um, I think what we proved between Q1 of 2020 and Q1 of Q1 of 2022 is that we can produce basically at or more GDP with uh, on average about eight and a half million during the quarter workers, eight and a half million less workers. And it's an astounding fact. And it's it's got a good side and a bad side. The good side is, wow, we're really productive and we really uh, you know adapted to this uh, world where we went to less labor-intensive businesses. Uh, and the other part is, well, okay, what are we going to do with the fact that we've got a pretty serious unemployment problem still, right. and a lot of those jobs may not come back? But, here, but here's what I find very interesting to ask both of you. So, Dave, I'll start with you. We are about to see this all slow down and change, though, aren't we? I mean, a portion of this will last, but the rest of the part that we're getting productivity gains from is from closed down parts of the economy that the public doesn't actually want closed down. They want to go to restaurants. They want to go to stores. They want to go to, you know, the summer carnival. They want to go on cruise ships. They want all of these things that weren't operating in the pandemic are about to come back online in a big way. Isn't that going to increase the labor force, slow productivity and are and reverse some of what you're talking about? It, it, it may, but you also have to juxtapose that with what businesses that adapted to an online business model and reinvested in more of an online business model are going to do going forward. Are you going to build more showrooms if all of a sudden everything went virtual for your car sales, for example, or whatever big ticket item you were doing? I, th- I think the, the big question, and I don't want to dismiss what you're saying, there's definitely going to be uh, a few million jobs probably added back that come into retail and hospitality. And again, those are going to be less productive because they're just more labor intensive jobs. But what we really did is we had a recession. And as Steve said, productivity goes up after recessions. But we had a recession because we decided or we we had to 
we had to decide to do things with less people or less interaction. And what that caused us to do was really innovate in the less interactive mm -hmm. uh, ways, uh, all of these businesses. And, and I think that is much more here to stay than maybe people are thinking uh, in the future. And, and it really portends a very different outlook for, for how a number of businesses outside of leisure and hospitality, whether it's financial services or whether it's transportation services or whether it's any, any form of uh, goods production as well, it just means that it more of a online or more of a virtual or, or a less labor uh, Less in the real world, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. We'll hold in the boardrooms. Kelly? And, and I think that's going to be a big difference in, in how this labor market bounces back. Steve? Yeah, so the dark ages were characterized by the loss of technologies from the Roman era, from the Roman Empire. We're not going to enter the dark ages here. We're going to remember the things we learned from the pandemic, and we're going to hold on to them because they're profitable and because they're efficient and because we live better with them. If you can do the job without the commute, well, you're going to do the job without the commute. If part of the job involves some commute, well, that's fine, too. And the amazing thing, Kelly, is we don't need a lot of extra productivity to live a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. Remember, productivity moves along at one and a half percent. Job job of hours work grow, grows by a half a percent. So potential is somewhere between one and three quarters and two. If we can hold on to half a point or even a point of that extra productivity, we're all going to live a lot better. It jumps up potential GDP right. to two and a half, maybe three percent. That's a big jump. It is. It's huge. It's one. It's a wonderful thing. Um, as long as you kind of eventually get out, get all the rest of those jobs as as productive, I guess, as you would say. But Dave, before we have to go, I want to ask you about something else that kind of underpins all of this. It's inflation. Um, and it's striking to read your notes at a time when most people out there in the world are screaming about hyperinflation and sell your bonds and short your bonds and bond yields are going up and the Fed's going to let it run hot and all of these things. I want you to tell everybody why you're happy to buy every single bond that they want to sell. Okay, maybe once we get over 2% on the 10-year. I, I'm not happy to buy them. I don't think they offer a lot of value. I've been telling our clients that since the beginning of the year and since we, we uh, vacated some of our standard risk parity strategies of yeah. last year, a whole decade. But let me just say, I, I think it's amazing that we had a core CPI print, which was the highest in nearly 40 years, and the bond market can't sell off. You got to think about it. the highest core <laughs> monthly print in 40 years since September 1981, when the bad old days of stagflation were there. And the bond market is kind of stuck in the mud. Is that because I, of the I, Fed? Is that people, the, the critics hey, will, will say hey, it's Kelly? all because the Fed is buying? Well, go ahead, Steve. No. I was just going to say very, very quickly that, Kelly, can you imagine the real disinflationary and deflationary forces in the U.S. and the global economy that we can't move the bond market with uh, uh, massive fiscal spending and massive Fed easing out there. I, that tells well, me that I there's think the, a lot the of things pushing down the outlook. Well, because I think the inflation is slowing the economy to some extent. Dave, I mean, is that yeah. part of your view, that when you have price hikes and, and shortages and things like this that, you know, are sort of resulting from the pandemic, that can act as a break? Look at what's happening in the housing market. People are going to substitute out. If oranges go up, they buy more apples. If steel goes down, they're going to buy more of that relative to lumber. We've heard, you know, people say it's cheaper to build with steel than lumber now, which is obviously not going to last. But again, I think more importantly than all that is that 
the market is not really buying into some hyperinflationary story. There's a lot of guys that love to come on and talk about it, and they, they preach the end of fiat currency, and they preach the end of the Fed, and they want to tell us why the Fed does a, such a terrible job when actually the unconventional monetary policies are really the only reason we got out of the last two recessions. But in general, I think people just aren't putting their money where their mouth is. They're scared. They've been beaten up. The, 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 the inflation bets, the big inflation bets, that have taken place over the last three decades, not mm-hmm. just even the last decade, right. going back to the 90s, have all been losers. All right. And so people are the gun shy. And I, I get that. I hope I hope we get some big inflation rates. I want to take bond yields up north of 2% to 25 I want to have a lot of rate hikes priced in for the next five years. And then I want to go back to my standard risk parity trades exactly. where I have value in the fixed income market. And people can actually do their 60-40 bond trades again. And mom and pop have a way to have a safe asset that isn't zero or negative yields. Yeah, yeah. So, Steve, let me, I'll give you the quick last word on all this. You know, I, I think I think David has it right. The idea. Uh, and by the way, it's not inflationary if inflation slows the economy, because then prices would would fall and the economy would slow down. The real danger here is some form of stagflation, which is not what I think is going to happen. I think this productivity boom is something to watch. It creates winners and it creates losers. And I think investors have to be careful on both sides of that equation. Some folks are not going to be winners in this productivity boom. There's equipment to be sold, but also some equipment, some industries are not going to end up on the plus side. Well said. Fascinating. I, I know some days I think I'm on one side of this uh, conclusion wise <laughs> and other days I'm on the next. Uh, maybe everyone in the market knows how that feels. Dave Zervos and our own Steve Leisman. Thank you both very, very much uh, for that today. Thanks. Coming up, you know these brands. Speaking of the housing market, Century 21, Coldwell Banker, Corcoran, they're all big players in it, and they're all owned by one company, Realogy. Its stock is up 280% in a year. The CEO joins us live with his take on the super hot housing market, where people are buying, offering cash to home sellers, and rising rates. Plus, actor and financial, uh, financial author Hill Harper is hitting the road, hoping to get blacks and Latinos into crypto. We're going to look at his effort to make digital currencies more accessible. All this, of course, as Bitcoin is trading back below 40000 We'll have more on that in a bit. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The red-hat housing market is driving existing home sales down for a third straight month. Sales slid almost 3% in April. And the National Association of Realtors says that for every listing, there were five offers and half of the homes sold above list price. Just take a look at this headline in The Wall Street Journal. Quote, real estate frenzy overwhelms small-town America. I came home crying. That referred to one bidder who lost out on a house. Joining me now with more on this boom is Ryan Schneider. He is the CEO of Realogy Holdings. They own brands like Coldwell Banker, Century 21, and Corcoran. Ryan, it's great to see you. What are you seeing on the ground? Well, Kelly, thank you for having me today. Um, We're seeing an incredibly strong housing market where consumer demand is just sky high. 
uh, with a number of trends behind that. And it's driving just the kind of demand for housing that you talked about. We're seeing more housing transactions actually happen than they did, you know, a few years ago in the market. And then as a company at Realogy, we're seeing, you know, market share gains over the last nine months as some of our technology success and our leading luxury market positioning is really paying off for our company and our shareholders. Can you talk about luxury for a moment? If I heard Diana right uh, earlier, she said that sales of homes in kind of the upper to, to nearly a million to over a million price range are up like double from this time last year. Why? Yeah. So first off, we are we're the leading luxury player. Uh, we're the number one of you know million dollar plus home sale companies. And there's a couple things that are happening. One is um, for all the talk about supply constraints, luxury actually has a reasonable amount of inventory. The inventory declines in the luxury area have been less than in other parts of the market. So there's just more supply available. And then second, a lot of the things driving the strong housing market skew to the more white collar upper part of the market, including things like the ability to do remote work. Uh, and, you know, some of the people moving to some of the more attractive tax and weather destinations. And so many of the things driving consumer man, demand have a little bit more luxury mm-hmm. than the overall market, which benefits us as a company uh, and gets to some of the luxury stats that Diana mentioned. That makes so much sense uh, as you break that down. And we've also heard a lot about some of the other things that are going on, people moving to warmer southern states, more tax-friendly areas, just the, obviously the move from urban to suburban. And, and I know that you're seeing all of those things. Um, I guess my question is, where do we go from here? You know, if we think back to the housing bubble of the early 2000s, that was psychological. You know, there were people who just thought home prices never go down. This is a great way to make money. I'm going to flip homes. Mortgage stand, uh, underwriting was very loose. And it all worked until it didn't. What's driving this boom seems different. It doesn't yet feel to me like it's driven by house flipping, although the investor share of home buying went up to 17 percent in the latest month. Um, are we getting to that kind of troubling territory yet in terms of psychology? I don't, I don't think so. I think what's really happening and the primary thing driving it is literally consumer demand. Not only do you have some of the rotations of geographies, whether urban to suburban or attractive tax and weather destinations that remote work and other things are driving, but you really have the millennial generation hitting their prime housing time. And bluntly, you have historically low interest rates, which are helping people dramatically, you know, to lock in, you know, 30 year kind of rates at just historic lows. Uh, and so there's a really strong combination of consumer demand where people are buying because that's where they want to live. They're not buying it for the flipping of 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Standards, to your point, are much tighter. And so, you know, we're seeing just really, really strong, durable demand continuing now for almost a year. And I'm very excited that hopefully as our country continues to move down the vaccination path, that may unlock some more supply and bring more houses onto the market as people make these choices yeah. uh, and maybe feel a little better about doing so. Interesting. And again, to your point, uh, you know, all cash buying is up. So we know that if people are willing to lay out cash, this is clearly not uh, the same kind of mania. Here's my last question. It's actually an arbitrage question since you're the expert. OK, let's say I want to, to quote unquote, play what's going on in the market. You know, there's people in in my area, northern New Jersey, who could sell their home for a great price right now, but they don't know where to go. You know, what's the best way to arbitrage this market? How can I benefit from high prices and go somewhere where I'm not going to get hosed? So the reality is, you know, nobody's going to sell their house just to move to a house down the street because the price of the house down the street's up too. The reality is, what I counsel people is, it's literally about how you want to live your life. 
right? If you've got the remote work option and you want to live in Austin, Texas or Miami instead of New York City or San Francisco, that option is there for you right now, both to monetize the high demand in you know, northern New Jersey, but also take advantage of a different place you want to live. And so, um, you know, I don't think we're in an opportunity where it's about, you know, uh, arbitraging or making money on houses like it was in 2006. I really think we're in a bit of a social reshuffling and restructuring that remote work, the millennial generation, low rates are all going to. And so, um, you know, I like what that means for the the health of the housing market and the health of the people buying houses in terms of their economics, um, as opposed to people who, you know, 50 years ago were just chasing a fast dollar. Right. Social restructuring, I think you're absolutely spot on about that. And just so people are aware, you guys do have one of these programs where you'll buy their house uh, for cash. There's other things involved to try to help them. But this new way of interacting, I think, with uh, with brokers is going to be really interesting. Ryan, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Well, we really appreciate it. And we're really excited about our success in this market. Thank you for giving us a chance to share our thoughts. Yeah, Ryan Schneider is the CEO of Realogy Holdings. Coming up, one of the stocks benefiting from the rotation out of tech this year is this one that's up more than 100% in the past 52 weeks. And by the way, it's not the only one of its kind. We're going to have a closer look at the names and the sector gaining steam next. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app. We're back in a minute. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. U.S. climate. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Envoy John Kerry urging countries to join climate pledges made by the G7 nations. The seven largest advanced economies have agreed to end international financing for coal projects by the end of the year and eventually phase out support for all fossil fuels. Cruise lines are getting ready to set sail to Alaska. Carnival, Princess and Holland American Lines say that they'll resume cruising in July. Passengers do have to prove that they are fully vaccinated before the cruise sets sail. Shares of Carnival Cruise Line were up at the open, but are now pretty much flat on the day. And in Washington, the National Zoo has reopened and there is a new panda to see. Of course, reservations are required. The zoo is operating at just 20 percent and not all attractions are open. Fully vaccinated guests do not need to wear a mask, and the zoo is using the honor system like a lot of places. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, a look at the latest reopenings and also the reliance on people keeping their word on being vaccinated. But Kelly, I can tell you that I've ditched my mask. I am fully vaccinated at my Starbucks in my neighborhood, but I get uh, dirty looks. So it's a, it's a very tricky time. It's a very tricky time, even when you're not a yeah, when you don't have to wear the mask. It's very tricky. It's it's very, yeah. It, the whole thing makes me anxious. It makes me anxious to have it on. It makes me anxious to have it off. It's just <sighs> the times that we're living in, I guess. Yeah. yeah. 
I like the sweater, though. Anyway, uh, Rahel, we'll see you later. Let's get a quick check on markets right now. Speaking of pandas, had a black and white thing going on. Uh, the Dow was up 331 points at the highs of the session. But look, we're well off that. We're only up 116. The S&P has turned negative and the Nasdaq is now down by 44 points. Don was talking about this at the top of the show, but the Nasdaq's been on a four week losing stretch. Uh, so it may well continue. Take a look at shares of AMC. Look at the intraday here sliding to session lows down 3%. The company's second largest shareholder has just sold almost its entire stake. We're talking about Wanda America Entertainment. Their stake is down to just 0.002% from a nearly 7%. So we'll watch AMC. VF Corp is also down 7% on earnings. They're behind brands like North Face, Timberland, and Vans. They did beat top line estimates, but reported lower than expected per share profits. They say they've also seen some supply chain delays. Investors not reacting kindly. Datadog hired today on an upgrade from Morgan Stanley. Firm saying the stock can rally more than 30%, talking about its growing customer base and ability to sell new products to existing customers. Always a winning combo. Uh, D-Dog up 1.5%. If you want more on that call, you can go to cnbc.com slash pro. Another name we're watching today is Caterpillar. That one's up about 2%. It's one of the stocks benefiting from the big rotation out of tech this year. Shares are actually outperforming the tech ETF, the XLK. Let's get over to Seema Modi for a sectornomics breakdown. Seema. Hello, Kelly. Amid the volatility and high growth stocks this year, particularly in the tech sector, we've been seeing a rotation into some of the more cyclical names, including the industrials. In three months, that sector has gained more than 10 percent, while those with more growth exposure like tech and consumer discretionary are basically flat. Some of the standouts include UPS, Textron and Snap-on among the top performers in recent months, all up around, take a look at that, 30 percent. Kansas City Southern is up almost 40 percent in three months as Canadian National and Canadian Pacific continue to fight over acquiring it, with Canadian National being declared the winner earlier today. But with this run-up in industrial stocks, names like Caterpillar, Honeywell are now trading at valuation levels similar to tech giants like Apple and Alphabet. Caterpillar at almost 27 times earnings. Apple sits closer to 25. The industrial sector overall is currently trading just ahead of the tech sector in terms of forward earnings, a reversal from earlier this year. And it is these valuation concerns and stalled infrastructure talks in Washington that has led to some of these names to, to come off their highs in recent days and weeks. Kel? All right, Seema, thank you, Seema Modi. Coming up, Tesla's major loss. Who could be the next blue chip and hot backs summer? It's all coming up in rapid fire. But first, it's Friday. That means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. It's the last week of May, and retail earnings are heating up. We'll get results from the likes of Nordstrom, Capri Holdings, Best Buy, Costco, and Ulta. NVIDIA results are also on deck. That name down 9% over the past month as the chip shortage continues. And Lordstown Motors rescheduled its release from last week. All eyes will be on their electric truck numbers. It's a busy week on Capitol Hill. Fed Chair Jay Powell will testify in front of the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday, while big bank CEOs will appear in front of both the Senate and the House on Wednesday and Thursday. The CEOs of Twitter, Discovery, and Uber take the virtual stage at J.P. Morgan's annual Tech Media and Communications Conference. Facebook, PayPal, and ExxonMobil all hold their shareholder meetings. Plus, we'll get a slew of economic data, including GDP, consumer sentiment, and confidence numbers, new home sales, and durable goods for the month of April. That's your Friday Fast Forward.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on the stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, we welcome Molly Wood, host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech, Tim Seymour, chief investment officer of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC Fast Money trader, and Morgan Brennan. Welcome, everybody. And let's start with the crypto collapse today as more regulators impose limitations. Today, the Hong Kong government announced crypto exchanges can only provide services to either professional investors or people with at least a million dollars in their portfolios. This after China outright banned financial institutions and payment companies from engaging in any crypto business. Since that crackdown, Bitcoin is is down nearly 20 percent. Deutsche thinks the crypto is on the verge of going from trendy to tacky, Tim, which I would say is maybe a a benefit. It's kind of like it's it's you know, it's it's gone mainstream. But to some extent, I don't know that that's supportive of price long term. What do you make of uh, all of these whipsaw moves in crypto this week? I thought you were asking me that question first as someone that maybe has gone from trendy to tacky itself. <laughs> um, look, I, I think you have a case here where uh, trendy to tacky may be from, you know, under uh, under uh, estimated or at least from from a weightings perspective to just an overcrowded trade. I think if you listen to Bank of America's fund manager survey, which I do, and I think mm-hmm. actually picks up on at least weightings and dynamics in terms of momentum uh, and where trades just get overdone, I think that's clear. I think that the concept of 1% of corporate treasury going to Bitcoin that came up over the summer is kind of absurd. Um, and, and the move away from retail to institutional, but locking out retail folks who really have been the largest part of this trade. You know, that that could have significant ramifications. And again, we saw what happens with a little bit of margin can go a long way. But do you mean ramifications good or bad? Yeah, bad. I do. And again, I I think we we see where folks have become very overextended. And and obviously, even in some level, I think that's hit the market, too. Um, The institutionalization of this industry is happening. I'm Mm -hmm. not you know, uh, it's it's easy to push back after the last few days. Bitcoin is here to stay. Uh, it's a question of how people are adopting and integrating. Yes, you're sort of in the David Rubenstein camp where he said the same thing, Molly, earlier this week. I think yesterday morning on CNBC, he said crypto is an asset class and it's here to stay. And, you know, again, once all the pension funds and the insurance companies are in it, yeah, that's kind of the metamorphosis from, from trendy to tacky. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's over. What would you say about all of the headlines we've had and, and some of the regulatory crackdown we've seen on crypto this week? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I agree that Bitcoin was sort of always headed for some kind of crackdown. It's certainly once you have a trillion dollar plus asset class, it is not going to vanish overnight. That's just not going to happen. But I think a couple things are happening. One is that it is moving markets outside its own category. You're seeing crashes in cryptocurrency affect the rest of the market. Hmm. That makes people nervous. And you're starting to see it creep into actually threatening financial institutions. Remember that the original goal of cryptocurrency was to be a decentralized currency that would cut out banking. Ethereum has a bunch of built-in tools that would potentially replace big chunks of the financial system. And so I would say that this is the kind of crackdown from, you know, what a lot of crypto fans think of as traditional finance that was inevitable. And frankly, I wouldn't sleep on concerns about the environmental impact. I think that that complaint is only growing. That was a big part of China's crackdown on mining. And I think that represents a pretty real threat. There is a brilliant story, Morgan, in the Wall Street Journal today that outlines some of these coal power, coal powered power plants, which are being bought by investors in Bitcoin mining and converted in some cases to nat gas. But regardless, they're using this massive wattage to basically mine Bitcoin cheaper and cheaper. So we're talking about humongous uh, 
mobilization of resources here. And I guess for regulators, especially in China, just the, the simple concern is they don't want capital flight out of their countries. I think that's a big part of it. I mean, and if you're a Bitcoin believer, are you surprised or upset that China would be cracking down? I think that probably just bolsters your right. argument for the strength and the long term value of something like Bitcoin and the fact that it is decentralized in nature. Um, that being said, I mean, I spoke to Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy. Mm-hmm. That was Squawk a great interview. Thank you. Um, from, uh, so I was on Squawk on the Street mm-hmm. this morning. MicroStrategy, for better or worse, it's actually a business intelligence software company, uh, but they have been amassing billions of dollars in Bitcoin that they hold in their treasury. Um, and that in turn has actually has significant realized gains. Um, but I, I talked to him about this and, you know, he basically said volatility is the price you pay for Bitcoin specifically to be 10 times outperforming the S&P index over the past decade. And that he also says that he sees synergies for better or worse, um, but that he sees synergies in terms of the of Bitcoin on his books uh, and the software business that they've seen their best two back to back quarters in the Hmm. software business in in more than a decade. uh, And that they basically are feeding each other and that his shareholders and employees are delighted. So that's that's kind of the bull case that's out there right now, that despite the fact that you have all this volatility, you have a company, a country like China cracking down um, that it does still for you can debate the purposes yeah. of it, but it does still seem to have a store of value. Right. And, you, and that's why I think you're right. You watch corporate America. You watch the institutional investors and it doesn't seem like they're backing away any, anything like that yet. Tesla, a little bit different story, um, which we'll get to in a moment uh, in terms of news on Tesla. But let's talk about this NVIDIA stock split this morning. This one's kind of fun. It was a four for one split. We don't see a lot of stock splits these days. The stock up about three percent on the move. But, Tim, there's speculation that this could be paving the way for NVIDIA, about 600 right now, to enter the Dow. It'd be about 150 a share. Robert Hum did a great write-up of this today. About the same price as yep. IBM, which is uh, splitting off a business unit anyway later this year. Maybe it could replace Intel. I mean, wow, what an embarrassment that would be for Intel. But Intel's only about $50, so it might not you know, work as well in terms of the price weighting. Look, NVIDIA's role in, in new age and graphic chips uh, and, and it, you know, it's, it's a leading edge technology company. Dow Industrial should have it. I, I'll save for another segment the absurdity of a price weighted index because it, it makes no sense. And <laughs> but it, 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 it the, the reasons. <laughs> it, it, well, maybe, maybe. But I mean, the, the, like a seminal moment was was CRM Salesforce going in August 31st to uh, replace Exxon. You know, so again, a need to get uh, more relevant software uh, technology is a very low weighting in the top 10 stocks in the Dow. I think it's I think it's nine or 10 percent. Microsoft is the biggest weight. It should be significantly bigger. Yeah. Um, NVIDIA makes a ton of sense. The move in CRM into that placement was about 40% in two weeks. In addition to some very strong earnings and some dynamics there, this will have a huge impact on this stock, which has been dead money since September. Huh. Well, this, the move happens in June. If it did replace something like Intel, then it would obviously have a much bigger impact on tech's weighting in the Dow. Morgan, quick additional thought on this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it necessarily has to be Intel that it swaps out. Walgreens, for example, only has a $47 billion market cap versus everything else that's hundreds of billions or, in the case of Microsoft and Apple, trillions. But it does speak to the ever-increasing role, I think, that we're even having this conversation that tech plays in our broader economy. I'd also just note you're seeing that, too, 
And Seema touched on this earlier in the show. You're seeing that, too, just in terms of where companies are choosing to list their shares. Honeywell being the most recent example, another Dow component that's moving to the Nasdaq right now, oh. as it, too, basically builds itself as this industrial tech company. Yes. Just speaks to the strength of tech. That's been my favorite story this week with Deer. <laughs> it yes, being a tech company, absolutely. Right? Ag tech. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you know, everything every, good for the Nasdaq, uh, I guess. Anyway, let's turn now to Tesla. Okay. Speaking of all of this, the shares are down 30 percent from their all time high back in January. B of A lowering its price target to 700 from 900. To put Tesla's drop in perspective, its fall from January is worth more than the individual market value of 481 out of the S&P 500 stocks. Half of its $272 billion market cap loss rests on the shoulders of just 10 investors, including CEO Elon Musk, Molly, and Oracle CEO Larry Ellison. Yeah, I mean, the story of... When even Elon Musk has said, I believe more than one time that Tesla's stock is overvalued, you get to that comment about a price weighted index. Like there's <laughs> Tesla, as as usual, so many things about Tesla show you that two things can be true at once or Elon Musk. It is a successful car company that is super overpriced. And so I feel like this is sort of it was inevitable. And it's inevitable given the regulatory questions about its advertising about self-driving cars. It's inevitable given the fact that, you know, a, a California DMV memo said that despite Elon Musk saying they'd have self-driving cars by the end of the year, the, you know, engineering reality is nowhere near that. Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of feels like, I, it feels like a correction. And if Elon himself is taking the brunt of it, that's probably fine. Well, Tim, I got no complaint about that. And in terms of emblematic of this whole market, you know, you have Tesla down 30 percent. While, like Morgan said, you have or I think you mentioned Exxon. I mean, the energy names, the financial names this year have been up by about the same amount. I mean, it has been a massive rotation um, from some of the I, I would call Tesla, you know, one of these Momo names, tech names, whatever you want to call it, into into value. It's it, it's not an auto company. And, and again, if, it, depending on how conveniently you want to choose to have it be an auto company, when we talk about actually they're going to maybe deliver a million cars this year, which I don't think they're going to do. Look, Tesla's valuation makes no sense. This week um, was really about Ford's EV game. And, and autonomous, I don't think, is the most important dynamic, certainly in the if we're calling these auto uh, you know, sectors, uh, dynamics. And, and again, I think the competition, the competitive landscape around Tesla has never been more front and center. Uh, valuation in Tesla, the, 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 if they're going to be raising stock uh, constantly because they need growth capital, first of all, right. that was a reason to get to the stock to this level. It re-rated. Good for them. They're able to do it, um, but it will weigh on the stock price. Yeah. And that exact... Some it's often cited as a reason for bullishness. They'll have more capital. They can grow more quickly, et cetera, et cetera. Well, B of A is changing its mind on that today. Um, and yep. we didn't we weren't going to talk about it, Morgan, but also, I mean, Virgin Galactic, another example of one of those high flyer stocks that hit the skids. But I'll move on. I'll move on. <laughs> we will talk. We will talk instead about what's going on, uh, it, sort of socially speaking. Uh, with the vaccination effort across the country. About 60% of the adult population has received at least one COVID-19 vaccination right now, but the White House wants to get to 70%. And so the Biden administration is coming up with all kinds of incentives or even turning to dating apps. They have teamed up with nine of the largest dating sites from Match to Bumble to offer badges disclosing people's vaccination status and other perks. Um, so that if you've gotten your shot, Molly, I mean, I guess on a dating app, I can see why people would want to know that. I mean, I think this is absolutely genius. This suggests that there are young people in the Biden administration who fundamentally understand the key driver of this particular demographic, which is FOMO, fear of missing out on 
hooking up with someone after maybe a year and some change inside, I think is an absolutely genius move as an incentive to get vaccinated. Morgan? What does that mean? I mean, it's great. Okay, you're vaccinated against one disease. Like, what what, are, what other diseases are uh, no, there when no. we're talking about dating? That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but I will say that this actually gets at a bigger um, issue, a bigger debate that's going on right now. And that's the fact that the rate of vaccinations in general is slowing. And you can genuinely start to have the debate about whether we are actually going to hit, as the federal government defines it, herd immunity and what that looks like. I mean, you've got governors that are getting very creative and pulling out the stops on this, too. We talked to Ned Lamont from Connecticut earlier today. I mean, justice from Governor Justice from West Virginia offering savings bonds. Uh, People are getting creative about this. Lotteries, wine tastings. Last word, Tim. My wife watches Power Lunch. Uh, I'm not on any dating sites. I just want to make that very clear. So uh, I think so I'm, I'm glad it's happening. Good for them. So defensive. Uh, Tim, Molly, and Morgan, thank you all Sorry. so much for joining us here on Rapid Fire today. Very much appreciate it. Coming up as the CDC relaxes mask guidelines and the U.S. economy gets back on track, one strategist says it's time to start looking for opportunities overseas. She'll give us her picks next. And take a look at shares of Foot Locker, higher on stronger-than-expected earnings today, up about 3%. CEO Dick Johnson will join Closing Bell to discuss these results and more at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it. Welcome back. The productivity boom has been a pleasant surprise for the recovery. But my next guest says U.S. growth is set to peak this quarter. And when coupled with some signs of froth, it's time for investors to start searching overseas to find better gains. For more, let's bring in Lori Heinel. She's global CIO of State Street Global Advisors. Lori, it's great to have you. So uh, let's get specific right to the point here for people. Where should they be putting their money to work? Well, first and foremost, we do think that the recovery has legs. So we remain overweight to equities, but we've been doing a bit of repositioning, if you will. Uh, We've been looking at places like commodities uh, for the next leg of growth. And we've started to reposition from certain regions into Europe because relative valuations are pretty attractive there. So it's still a bit of a risk on environment. We still think that recovery has legs, as I mentioned, but trying to reposition to places where there's a little bit more value is one of the things that is a big theme for us right now. Yeah. And so where would those places be? Well, as I mentioned, uh, looking at commodities as one place relative to equity markets, because there, again, the the broad-based commodity set will benefit from some inflation pickup. We also have been looking at Europe, which is a place where uh, we've been pretty um, cautious uh, because of the slowness of the rollout of their vaccination. And we've moved money out of Asia, for example, as we started to see some more fully realized valuations, along with some setbacks in Asia. And what about emerging markets? So are there do you kind of look for specific ones? Do you invest there broadly speaking? And how long a time horizon should people expect to be putting capital to work there? Yeah, from an overall asset allocation perspective, we think about it as an asset class or a sub-asset class. And so we tend to allocate on a tactical basis, either into or out of emerging markets as a cohort, if you will. And that's a place where we've been pretty constructive generally. But as you note, there are some regions that are more attractive. Uh, notably, China had been a big driver of emerging growth over the last you know many years, but especially coming out of the pandemic. And so if you think about Asian uh, emerging markets being geared to China growth, that's 
an area where we would be favoring at the margin. And then conversely, if you look at Latin America, they've really been uh, suffering much more and continue to be behind the curve in terms of, of the virus. So um, within the emerging markets, definitely places to tactically, tactically position. But from an overall standpoint, we look at it as an overall asset class. And, and we think you do have to have a long horizon. But overall, we've, we've seen pretty good uh, valuations there and have been dipping a toe there. Yeah, the, it's uh, areas we don't talk about as much these days. So we appreciate you highlighting them. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. Lori Heinel of State Street Global Advisors. Still ahead as Bitcoin falls this week, actor and best-selling financial author Hill Harper is hoping it falls even more as he takes his crypto tour on the road. We'll tell you why next. Welcome back. For many, Bitcoin has been a huge opportunity to build wealth, but it's not accessible to everyone, especially some investors of color. Now, actor and financial author Hill Harper is hitting the road to help spread the word and the wealth. Frank Holland has more for us. Frank. Hey there, Kelly. 10,000 Satoshis, those are fractional Bitcoin shares, are going to be given away on the Bitcoin bus tour Hill Harper has launched for his fintech, The Black Wall Street. The actor and activist is advising people of color to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. The tour, it actually stopped in Detroit last night, where Harper's team made the argument Bitcoin's 25% rise in 2021 makes it an ascending asset, opposed to the dollar that is basically flat for the year. Harper believes these free fractional shares will encourage more adoption. We want to show and prove by giving free money away, by giving Satoshis and say, here's here's where they will sit. This is how you can access them. This is how you can move them around. And we want you to dollar cost average into this asset class. It's important to do that by me putting my money where my mouth is. Bitcoin adoption by investors of color is already on the rise with black and Latino investors more likely to hold crypto. Harper says Bitcoin's recent decline, falling more than 30% over the past month, may scare some investors of color, but he sees it as a buying opportunity, highlighting that only 21 million Bitcoins can actually exist. I tell people, think about this Bitcoin as real estate, digital real estate. Each Satoshi you purchase, you're buying a little bit of real estate. What has historically made real estate an asset class? It's scarcity. The Satoshis are transferred on May 31st when the app launches. It is also the 100-year anniversary of a racial attack that destroyed Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, of course, that's what the app is named after. Frank, but it's interesting what you said, that actually blacks and Hispanics are more likely to own crypto, uh, if if I saw that bar chart correctly. And and I think think that's super interesting. I mean, and you see, when you get on TikTok and you see everybody who's so excited about it, it would seem like he's kind of just helping to draw attention to it. And I I assume that would only help raise awareness. Yeah, he's trying to draw attention, but also some more strategy. But a lot of celebrities have been talking about it. You know, rapper Nas is in a new song with Jay-Z and DJ Khaled talking all about the money that he made by investing in Coinbase. And we've seen rappers like Meek Mill kind of tweet, you know, I'm going to buy some Dogecoin ahead of that SNL appearance by Elon Musk. So it's becoming much more mainstream and these celebrities are helping push it even more so. What's Kevin Durant's involvement? He's also an investor in Coinbase. Okay, I missed that. Good for him. Oh, there's all these NBA players. They're so strategic these days. Everything they do, whether it's crypto or anything else. Uh, Frank, thanks so much. Our Frank Holland joining us today. That does it for the exchange. But coming up next on Power Lunch, speaking of crypto, are you ready, everybody? Ron Insana is taking you on the entire crypto universe. He says it's leading investors to doom. 
He's going to explain his call after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 